Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you ever wondered about what makes some highly successful people constantly highly successful? You know, there's some key principles to underlying healthy, sustainable peak performance. And today, I am very happy to be joined by Brad Stolberg. He is a researcher, writer, speaker, and coach on health and the science of human performance. He's written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Wired, and many more successful publications, and recently came out with his own book, Peak Performance. Thank you for joining me in the studio today, Brad. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, really looking forward to this. Well, you know, as I was taking a look at your book, it sort of, there were so many different principles that rung true to me. You know, that idea that you've, you want to do something, you get all excited for a performance, you think it's going to go great, and sometimes you don't set yourself up for complete success, whether it be nerves or whether it be not being prepared or whether it be not enough rest. There's there's often these reasons why things don't go the way we expect them to. And in retrospect, it's easy to analyze it. But prospectively, we have troubles. What motivated you to write this book to really help keep give people the tools they need? So I think you, you kind of answered the question in asking it. Um, I would say that my own experience with exactly what you described. So feeling like I had prepared really well, feeling like I was on a path for long-term sustainable performance and then having things go wrong or having the result be really great performance, but only for a short period of time and then feeling fatigued and burnt out after that. And as a a researcher and writer, um, I often, very rarely do I write because I've got something figured out. I often write to try to figure stuff out. So this, this really started off as a personal quest to try to figure out you know, is is not only peak performance possible, sure, that, that I know, but is there a way to sustain it? And if so, what are some of the principles that cut across different fields that help sustain it, that underlie that type of sustainable peak performance? Do you often find that people are amazed at their capacity? You know, I know early in the book you talk about Roger Bannister, the guy who did the four-minute mile, the first guy to do it, and everybody thought it couldn't be done, and yet he decided this was something that he was motivated and he was going to accomplish. Do we? Do you think people are not completely aware of what sort of amazing accomplishments that they can create because they limit themselves? I think so, and I think this gets to, to the heart of a really interesting paradox in, in performance science, and that is, I think that conventional wisdom holds that the, the reason that we limit ourselves is because we don't push ourselves hard enough, and I think so often it's actually the opposite. The reason that we limit ourselves is because we don't take time to rest and recover. What few people know about Roger Bannister is that he had been trying to break that record for years, and he failed repeatedly. And what separated his successful attempts from those prior attempts was he actually took two weeks off before running the mile in under four minutes. Uh, He went on a hiking trip with his friends and didn't run an inch. And then he felt fresh, and he broke the record. Uh, Clearly, someone like that had to train 
their you-know-what off to, to have the fitness to break that record. But I really think that what allowed Bannister to run under four minutes was actually the act of stepping away and giving himself a little bit of space and time to recover. Uh, I think that this is a problem that a lot of type A driven people run into is they're so motivated and they're so inspired to reach their best that they keep work, 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 and they don't allow themselves time to rest and recover uh, when both the, the body and the mind need that rest and recovery to have a breakthrough. Well, and it sort of harkens back to how many times do I recall people saying the night before a big exam, you shouldn't try and cram a whole semester's worth of information into your head. Yeah. Do a little bit of review, get yeah. some rest. And yet I was always that person that's like, but I know if I stay up till 1 a.m., I can just learn one more thing that'll be on that exam. And yet what you're saying is, really, you should have listened you would have done better in physics, for example, had you just gotten enough rest. Is this, I mean, this was something that I should have done 20 some years ago, and I still find myself staying up late just to get a little bit more done. How can I convince myself to go to bed? I think it's easy. I mean, I could sit here and I could go over all the science that shows that your brain is doing all of its processing and storing and sorting information, not while you're awake working, but actually while you're sleeping. And I could go through uh, tens of studies that show this to be true. I think more powerful is just to ask you, and, and I know that I'm also asking your listeners when I ask you, think about the times that you pushed yourself to stay up late at night doing work. What percentage of those times did you wake up the next morning and redo what you did because you had some kind of aha moment or you, you felt fresh or you saw the problem from a new way. Always happens. I remember going to sleep saying, I can't finish this calculus problem and somehow waking up the next morning and going, I got the answer. It's like you were doing math at night while you were sleeping. And in fact, they've done some studies, I think, and you've probably seen them, some of the functional MRIs and some of the PET scans that looked at blood flow in different areas of your brain. And what we used to say is, you know, we only use 20% of our brain. Then we found out in the medical world that we only knew how to measure what we thought we were using. But when you actually do studies of people when they're sleeping, you see a lot of blood flow in areas that you wouldn't expect. The brain isn't sleeping. The brain's actually pretty active at night. Yeah, that's something, um, that's something that we, we, we definitely learned in researching for, for this book is that we like to think of rest, especially cognitive or mental rest, as this very passive thing. But rest isn't passive at all. Rest is really active. Uh, it's, it's a little bit easier for an athlete to, to understand this concept, which is if you're an athlete and you train really hard in the weight room or on the track, you're actually tearing your body down. And it's only when you sleep that your body builds itself back up and recovers. Uh, like you're saying, there's some more recent research that shows that the mind actually functions pretty similarly. During the day, when you're actively working, whether it's problem-solving, if you're a physician, if it's uh, trying to figure out diagnoses, you're, like, stressing your mind. And if you don't allow your mind to recover, A, it's not going to be as sharp the next day, and chronically over time it will be less sharp. And then, B, even acutely in the near term, you're less likely to have that breakthrough uh, aha moment of insight. 
Well, and I think the muscle analogy, everybody can understand. Nobody goes to the gym and says, you got to do legs every day. You know, they say vary the routine, cross training, give yourself some time to rest, hydrate. So it seems like with physical activities, there might be more of an intuitive nature to say, of course, you have to rest because you need to physically exert yourself. But I find that in intellectual activities, people may be less likely to give themselves that opportunity because they don't understand, like you mentioned, that it's important to stress yourself at times, but it's important to rest yourself at times as well. And so certainly that's where people may get the most benefit is that combination of stress when you need it and rest when you need it. How can you find out how much rest you really need? So it's a good question. There's a fair amount of research. There's actually just an article that ran in the Wall Street Journal, I think, today or yesterday, that said that it's kind of a myth that adults or various adults need various amounts of sleep, and that the vast majority of the science shows that most, most adults function best with seven to eight hours of sleep. So I think that that's a really good starting point. Now, there's also some studies that show that about 1% of the population has a genetic mutation where they can get by on less than six hours of sleep and still be all right. Uh, everyone likes to think that that's them, but that's just not how odds work. If it's 1%, it's probably not you. Um, I, always, I always find that funny. Whenever I speak to large groups, everyone raises their hand and says it's them with genetic mutation. And then I ask if there's a statistician in the room, and without fail, someone that knows math, it's probably not everyone. Yeah, that's um, not how statistics work. I think I read that quote in your book and I laughed out loud. I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. I'm not in the 1%. I'm with you on that. Yeah, it really isn't so, how statistics work. So so anyways, um, I digress. I, I think that the seven to eight hours of sleep is, is a good starting point. And then I also like to think about taking micro breaks throughout the day. And that can be as simple as walking to fill up a water bottle or... Uh, if you normally go to the coffee shop in your office, going to the coffee shop outside, that's going to require you to walk five minutes there and five minutes back. Because what's happening during those micro breaks is you're allowing your effortful thinking mind to kind of shut down and rest for a minute, which allows your subconscious, more creative mind to come online. So again, you're enhancing your creativity, you're enhancing your problem solving, and you're also resting the part of your mind that's normally engaged in deep focus. Um, the cadence and frequency of those breaks, I think it depends. If you're a surgeon that's in an eight-hour case, you don't have the luxury of taking 10-minute breaks every two hours. Most of us aren't surgeons in eight-hour cases. I think that we get really pulled into our work because we feel compelled to just keep going till we finish something. But all the evidence, again, shows that if you step away, even for five to 10 minutes, you end up finishing a lot faster and with a higher quality. Um, so I guess to summarize, I think the seven to eight hours of sleep at night is foundational. And then I think trying to scatter in a few breaks throughout the day, uh, can be really effective for both performance and then also just for well-being and how you feel. Well, it certainly sounds like something we ought to do. Speaking of breaks, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. I'm on the line here with Brad Stolberg, author of Peak Performance. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other things that we could do in our daily lives that may seriously help us with focus and performance. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. 
Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and on the line I have Brad Stuhlberg. He is a researcher, writer, speaker, and coach in the science of human performance. He wrote a book called Peak Performance and is going to be here in the islands having a discussion about this. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about things we can do to help our body get into that peak state. One of the biggest things we don't do enough of is rest. But you know, Brad, another thing that I think people often get stuck with in this day and age is this sense of of the multitasking, the idea yeah. that we should be checking email, checking phone messages, checking voicemail, present in our job, doing something on the computer, talking with someone in front of you. Do you think that there really ever is an effective way for people to multitask, or should we really try to focus and eliminate some of these areas of technology interruptions? So uh, similar to sleep, I'd like to think that, yes, there's a way to effectively multitask. Uh, I'd feel less guilty myself if that were the case. Um, And I feel like I could be a lot more productive. And and for many years, I I did think that. And then I looked at some of the more recent research, which paints a very different picture. One of my favorite studies uh, came out of Stanford University, And what researchers there did is they recruited individuals that specifically said that they're good at multitasking, and they put them in an fMRI machine to look at uh, blood flow to their brain as a proxy for brain activity. And they had them multitask while they were imaging the brain. And what they found is that the brain was actually switching on a very, very millisecond level between tasks. So under the hood, you're actually not multitasking, you're switching. Now, where things get even more interesting is that afterwards, they asked the participants uh, how productive they felt. And the participants said that they felt like they got a lot more done when they were multitasking than when they were single-tasking. But the researchers were objectively measuring how many problems they solved, how much they got done. And what they found is even though it feels like they got more done when they were multitasking, they actually got more done at a higher quality when they were single-tasking. So we're really good at tricking ourselves. And we like to think that, oh, I'm checking my phone, I'm posting a tweet on Twitter, I'm making sure that my kids are safe at school, I'm answering emails, and I'm writing this memo all at the same time. I'm so productive. I'm getting all these things off my to-do list. Uh, actually what's happening is you're probably just extending your workday and lowering the quality of your work. Yeah, I got to tell you, I used to think I was a great multitasker, but there are those moments when you're focused on something and time seems to stand still and you can just get into that flow, that sense that you really are doing your best with this one particular activity. And if you can just find the ability to turn off all the distractions it really does help you to get something done. I've had patients come to ask me, hey, I think I have ADD. And I'm like, really? Well, what happens? Well, I get distracted all day long. I can't get anything done. And I say to them, what if you just closed yourself in a room and nobody bothered you? No phone calls, no emails, no nothing. And you just got something done. Could you focus? And they say, oh, yeah, if nobody bothered me, I would do great. So their problem is actually not that they have a serious issue with distraction internally, but actually it's external. And we're volunteering for this. We're leaving our phones on all day. We're checking emails throughout the day. People are looking at Facebook. The amount of time people spend every day just 
browsing through social media is some really valuable time. They could be doing something else. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. I feel like we are on uh, a parallel, parallel excuse me, wavelength. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I just think it's important to withhold judgment. So I, I've written a book on this topic, and I coach many top performers on this topic, and I struggle with this mightily. Uh, I, I would say that the best indicator for how productive I am is if I bring my phone with me when I go to sit down and write. If I bring my phone, I'm not very productive. I get sucked into the vortex. If I leave my phone at home when I go to the coffee shop to write, I get a lot more done and I feel a lot better. So this is a challenge that even someone like myself, you know, a, a proclaimed expert in this field, struggles with. And, and for good reason. Our, our phones, they are designed to completely lure us in. If you think about the act of checking your email or checking social media or even waiting for a phone call, it operates a lot like a slot machine. Like you open up this thing, you scroll down, or you turn on the phone, and you're not sure if you're going to get a reward. And a reward might be an email, or a reward might be someone likes a post on social media, or a reward might be a call from a friend or family member. And it hooks you, right? Because, like, you're constantly checking, huh? And we like to think, you know, oh, well, it's just a phone. It has less of a pull than a slot machine would have. But I would argue that every time something happens on your phone, the reward is huge because it's basically a reminder that you're meaningful and that you exist in the universe. So we keep on scrolling up and down on our phone for these reminders. And it, it, it really takes a lot of effort to break out of these patterns. And, and I have found personally, and there's some research to support this, that just having your phone in your pocket, even if it's turned off, not enough. Because A, you might turn it on. And B, the amount of willpower it takes to resist turning it on and resist checking it takes away from whatever you're doing. So what I found a really good solution for myself and a lot of top performers that I coach is, is to try to find 60 to 90 minutes as a starting point per day where you really can just leave your phone behind, turn off the wireless on your computer, and do the most important work of the day. And what I find without fail is that the first week, this is really hard for people. They feel anxious. They feel like they're letting their colleagues down. They feel like there might be a family emergency that they're not going to get to. By week two or three, they start to feel more comfortable. And by week four, they tell me that the favorite part of their day is this 90 minutes when they get to do the most important thing without distraction. I've had clients tell me that they were on the verge of quitting their job, and then they realized that they weren't even doing their job. They were doing all these other things, and 90 minutes a day was all it took for them to feel fulfilled again. Well, that's certainly something we can all try and aspire to. I'll tell you, it almost makes me want to go back to the age of, you know, not having cell phones. As much as they're convenient, they also, and now the smartphones, you've got a computer in your pocket, and there is, there's absolutely a lure. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm on the line with Brad Stuhlberg, author of Peak Performance. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how Figuring out how to find that 60 to 90 minutes to focus may also help you to find something even greater, which might just be your purpose and really help to revitalize how you approach your job and the things you do every day. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training, Moyer Financial, and Kaiser Permanente. 
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're back with The Body Show. I'm here with Brad Stolberg, author of Peak Performance, and we're talking a little bit about some simple things that all of us could do to make not only our lives at work more fulfilling, but also our lives at home, too. Now, right before the break, we talked about technology detox, and I've heard of these camps now that actually help people who might be addicted to cell phones or video games or some sort of technology to actually stop to stop using the devices. And often it has a lot to do with finding a way to spend more time in nature, to spend spend more time outdoors, interacting with other human beings. And I think that has a lot to do with helping people figure out what is their purpose? What is it they want to choose to do? And how is it that they can encapsulate that into like a mission statement for themselves? Brad, how do you go about even figuring out what your purpose is? Because I think for a lot of folks who might be experiencing burnout, whether it be in their job or even at home or whatever the circumstance might be, it might just be because they've forgotten the why of what they do. I agree. Uh, I, I think that the why is really important, especially for getting through challenging and trying times. Uh, whether those trying times is a rough period of work where you're having to put in more hours than you want, or whether that trying time is you're a new parent and you're totally sleep deprived. Um, I think that if you have a strong motivation behind what you're doing, you're much more likely to to hang in there and and bear it out and and even bear it out with a grin. Um, The research, again, supports this pretty strongly and shows that individuals that feel a large sense of both job purpose and overall life purpose, tend to be less prone to burnout. They tend to have longer careers, and not just longer careers, but they rate their careers as more fulfilling. Uh, so, so you're very much spot on in terms of the importance of having a, a strong purpose and a why motivating what you do. Uh, the second part of your question, how, how to go about cultivating a purpose, right? It's, it's for some people, uh, for example, people who are religious, uh, they, they've grown up with a purpose that is very close to their heart, and, and they live that. For other people, it's really hard to say, well, I don't know, what, what's my purpose? That seems like a very esoteric, grandiose question. Uh, I like to start by going down a level or two and, and just having a discussion about with yourself, what are, what are your core values? So what do you really stand for? Is it family? Is it reputation? Is it health? Is it friends? Uh, is it authenticity? You want to be really authentic? Is it spirituality? And trying to, to, to think of three to five core values, the things that you really aspire to be and uh, that you want to define yourself by. And then what I, I have coaching clients do is I ask them, how can you express those core values in your job? Sometimes it happens. It's not often, but, but rarely someone says, you know, I really can't. And that's scary, but I think it's good because it leads to a, a real good internal conversation of, well, am I in the right job? Should I be looking for a new job? Is this the right career for me? More often than not, what people come to is, wow, there are actually lots of ways to express these core values. I, I just need to be a little bit more aware of what they are and then focus on expressing them. Um, I think that you know we, we tend, as college students, to kind of have a really good internal compass and a purpose. And then over time, we don't necessarily go back to that and reflect on it, and it changes over time. And then you get to a point in the middle of your life where you're like, huh, like, you know, what what do I really stand for? Why am I doing what I'm doing? 
uh, and just creating some time and space to reflect on that. I, I love that you mentioned getting out of nature. I think there's just something about being out in the universe and not feeling confined that, that really opens up the mind to this sort of thinking uh, to reflect on your core values. And then suddenly it becomes easier to problem solve. Uh, how can I express this in, in my day-to-day role? So, for example, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor, so part of what I like to do is heal and help people on a variety of different levels. So if you are a lawyer and what you like to do is help people to not feel like the underdog or to make them feel like they still have a say in what happens in their environment or in their life, or if you're a teacher, I mean, it almost seems like if you're helping the next generation, if you're teaching someone, then that often can help you to recognize what you love about what you do. Even if you're not a teacher, but you find a way to share your experience with someone else, that may help you to to get to that deep need and fulfillment that people get, which often doesn't necessarily come from acquiring things, but comes from helping someone else or or from finding a way outside of themselves to figure out how to to help society or help individuals or just, you know, there's such a positive feedback loop when you help somebody else with a challenge that you've been through. It makes you feel good and you want more and more of it. Completely. And I think that even if you're not necessarily in, in a helping field like those you mentioned, you can still live on purpose. Um, you know, another thing that these core values do is they act as decision-making heuristics. So, for example, one of my core values is authenticity. And I define that as just trying to be as real as I can all the time. And as a writer, there are times when I'm writing an essay or a column, and I'm not sure if I should be vulnerable about something that, that, that feels really kind of nearby and close to my heart. And then I, I ask myself, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, you define yourself as wanting to be authentic. Well, well, what does that mean? And then it answers the question for me. Uh, and I feel good after I do it. You know, when, when, when sometimes when you make yourself vulnerable, it's uncomfortable in the short term. But, but wow, like you're living on your purpose. Uh, so, you know, I just use that as an example because I, I do think that oftentimes I hear from readers of the book and, and people that hear me speak that say, well, you know, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a teacher, that's fine. But, you know, what if you work at Walmart or what if you're a stockbroker? Uh, what if you're an athlete, you know, a field that's not so helping? And then I get into a dialogue with people about what they stand for. And again, I, I think with a little bit of creativity, you can still live those values. If you interact with other people in the world, you can generally figure out good ways to live your values. Well, and that kind of gets to one of the things that I think is very good for people to take that time to do a little deep dive, a little self-exploration. Because when we think about people getting frustrated at work, we hear a lot about burnout from a variety of different professions. One of the ways that you can try and prevent that is to fall in love with why you went into that profession. So taking the time to identify what your core values are, how you can express those at work, and then finding ways to share that with other people. You know, when you talk about being authentic in writing, what attracts people to read certain articles? It's usually when people are the most authentic about their experience, and they're doing that in an effort to help someone else discover what they find they need as well. So, you know, it really does get back to the idea of anybody, if you could just take maybe that 60 minutes, maybe that 90 minutes where you can just get rid of all your distractions, go outside or go for a walk, or even if you can't get up and ambulate, find some way to be around nature and think about that self-reflection time that you really 
might be able to help you through some of those tougher things that you might have to face in your daily activities. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful exercise. You know, I, I caveat it just because I, I know that there are a lot of listeners out there that if you do go through that exercise and you still feel kind of lost, uh, try not to despair and talk to someone about that. And that someone might be your physician, it might be a medical professional, it might be a family member. But unfortunately, and for a whole multitude of reasons, rates of depression are quite high right now in this country. Uh, and it, it sounds all hunky-dory, and, and for the vast majority of people, you go through that exercise and, and you do come to something. But for some people, you kind of feel lost and hopeless. Um, and I think it's important to know that, that that, even though it doesn't feel okay, but that that can be okay too, so long as that you get help and, and that you ought, to have, you, ought, you ought to feel just fine getting that help. And help is available. So if you do have any concerns, do talk to someone, a close friend or a family to make sure, or a physician to make sure that you can get the help that you need. I want to thank you, Brad. You've really given us some enlightening things to think about. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. If you want to meet Brad Stolberg, he is the author of Peak Performance. He's going to be here in Honolulu. To get more information, you can go to hhawa.com or 532-2156. I'm Dr. Kozak. See you next week on The Body Show.